You're now listening to episode 66 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Tom Castelli here today to talk about how limited partners, also known as passive investors, in real estate syndication can use passive losses to their benefit. Also, be sure to stick around to the end for our Q&A section where we will answer questions from you, the listener. Before we jump right in, I want to let everybody know that it's not too late to minimize your tax liability before the year ends. The Real Estate CPA will be putting on special virtual workshops in October, November, and December where we will discuss year-end tax tips for the first 15 to 20 minutes and then open the room up for questions. Seats are limited and you can sign up by visiting www.therealestatecpa.com slash virtual dash workshops or by following the link in the show notes below. But that's not all. We heard your feedback from last year and created a personalized year-end tax planning service for new clients that includes one tax estimate, a call with one of our tax strategists, and a written year-end action plan that explains the steps you'll need to take to implement any last-minute strategies to minimize and reduce your tax liability before year-end. If you're interested in learning more, head over to www.therealestatecpa.com slash become-client and fill out the web form, and we'll get back to you in one to three business days for a free initial consultation. For current clients, we'll be reaching out to you in the next few weeks to schedule your year-end tax planning call, but feel free to contact your tax strategist to get a head start. And without further ado, we're going to jump right into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Brandon and myself, we're going to speak about how passive losses are treated for limited partners in real estate syndication. Yeah, you know, we, we have a lot of clients that earn a lot of money, they're high net worth, high net income individuals, and they're looking for places to place this capital. We get these questions all the time in terms of if I invest in this syndication, they're running a cost seg study, they're doing 100% bonus depreciation. I get all of that. But when I invest 50K or 100K or 300K into this syndication, what is the tax impact that I am going to have here? Does this, is this going to result in a tax benefit? They talked about the cost of 100% bonus depreciation. Uh, how do I use the passive losses that are generated? Are they even considered passive losses? We're going to go through all of that today. Okay. So I think the first thing we have to touch on here is whether or not your investment is simply tax advantaged or if you're going to be able to use those losses against your ordinary income, which is the main points of confusion between uh, people who invest as a limited partner in syndication. And I think we could start off by saying that if you're not working full-time in a real estate trader business, you're not a real estate professional for tax purposes, which is something that we talked about a lot here on the show, uh, then your investment's simply going to be tax advantage. And what does that tax advantage mean? Tax advantage means that the losses produced or the depreciation expense rather, or uh, in combination with the rest of the operating expenses from the property is large enough to bring the net income to that property to zero or below zero. And you're not going to pay tax on the rental income generated by the property. The question then is, what happens to the losses in that scenario? Right. And so our high net worth individuals, our high net income individuals, they typically can't take those losses that are generated from the rental real estate activities. So 
the next question, as you mentioned, is what happens? Well, in most cases, it's going to be that the loss is going to be suspended. It's going to carry forward indefinitely until you either liquidate the rental real estate activity that is creating the loss or until you can create passive income or until another rental real estate activity liquidates that you can use the loss to offset the gain on. Now, when you're investing in a syndication, if I put $100,000 into a syndication and it's a standard multifamily syndication, value add play, they're going to run a cost segregation study. They're going to take 100% bonus depreciation. They're going to elect out of the real the business interest limitations as an electing real property trader business. What all that means is that when I invest 100K, I can likely expect to see an eighty-five dollars to $92,000 passive loss that's passed back to me on my K-1. And that's really mainly due to that 100% bonus depreciation and that cost segregation study. So I invest $100,000 and let's just say I have a $90,000 passive loss that is reported on my K-1. Since I'm a limited partner in this investment, I'm not materially participating. Let's also assume that I have a 200K W-2 job. So I'm phased out of the passive activity loss limitations. I don't qualify as a real estate professional. My options at this point are pretty nil. I have a $90,000 passive loss that has been suspended. It's going to carry forward unless I can figure out ways to tap into that today. There's really two ways that I can do that. I can liquidate. Well, there's three ways I can do that. I can liquidate the stake in the syndicate or the syndicate can liquidate. And that $90,000 suspended passive loss will then be utilized. I could create higher amounts of passive income by investing in quote unquote better deals I'm doing air quotes here because a better deal doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to increase your taxable income. I mean, you could be increasing your cash flow drastically, but not actually increasing your taxable income thanks to cost seg and 100% bonus depreciation, all of that. But theoretically, you know, if, if my taxable income increases with my cash flow, then I could invest in higher cash flowing assets that produce more taxable income, more passive income to tap into that $90,000 loss. Or I could liquidate another investment. So if if I invest in this syndication deal, I create this $90,000 loss and I have another property that maybe has 100K gain on it, I can liquidate that property. And the net difference is 10K in that case. So I don't have to do a 1031 exchange or go through that hassle. Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of clients, what they'll do is maybe they're liquidating a property that they own or another syndicate that they're investing in has liquidated. And they're going to go and say, you know what, I want to try to minimize the tax bite. And then they'll go and look for another syndicate to invest with or another property to invest in that's going to run a cost segregation study and increase these losses. So you could look at it from, I guess, just you know, either top down or bottom up. Either way, you're still getting to the same place. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if we take it from the other side, though, let's say that you can qualify as a real estate professional. Maybe you're, you're qualifying as a real estate professional, your spouse has a high income, and you're, you're pulling the trigger on these investments. Um, when you qualify as a real estate professional, you have to hit 750 hours in a real estate trader business, and then you have to be working greater than half your time in a real estate trader business. By qualifying as a real estate professional, you overcome the presumption that your rental income or losses are passive. They are not automatically treated non-passive, and that's the big key. Avid listeners of our podcast know that. They know that there's a second piece and they're waiting for me to drop it on them, which I'm going to in one second. If you don't know that there's a second piece to this, go back and listen to our other podcasts. 
simply qualifying as a real estate professional will not allow you to deduct your passive losses on your rental real estate activities. What do you have to have? Material participation. When you're investing in limited partnerships or, or an LLC where you're not materially participating, it's kind of difficult to demonstrate that you're materially participating in those rental activities, right? Like I can't go and invest in your deal, Tom, as a limited partner, as a money partner, and then try to claim that, oh, I was materially participating. Even though I'm a real estate professional, your, your deal could kick out this big passive loss and I still can't claim it because I'm not materially participating. But what we have at our disposal is an aggregation election. It's found under IRC section 1469-9. And what this allows us to do is group all of our rental real estate activities into one rental real estate activity. So what I could theoretically do is go and build up my own real estate portfolio that I do materially participate in. So maybe I buy five rental properties. I self-manage them. I hit 750 hours. I also participate in, in that landlording business more than any other material participation activity that I'm involved in. And then I invest in syndicates. And I make this aggregation election. I file a statement with my tax return to do so. I group in essentially all of my real estate activities into one. And since I'm already materially participating in my own portfolio, then I can also materially participate in the limited partnership investments. Now, that is the non-technical version, but that is essentially how it works. So if I create my own portfolio, then I can go and invest in syndicates. I can put 100K into a syndicate. I can get that $90,000 loss. The K1 is going to report it as a rental loss. Normally, that would be a passive loss. But since I have my own portfolio that I've materially participated in, and since I have this aggregation election on the books, I get to claim that entire $90,000 loss in the year that I make that investment assuming that the $90,000 loss comes in the year that I make the investment, of course. But the point is, is that I can now time my syndication investments and use that wisely to alter my tax position as long as I'm a real estate professional and as long as I materially participate in my own rental portfolio. That's awesome. And just the key there, if, you know, if everybody didn't get out there, is you have to have your own portfolio. You have to be a real estate professional. You have to materially participate in your rental portfolio. And then therefore, you'll be able to use those passive losses against your ordinary income from perhaps your spouse's W-2 job, from a business you're in, or another position that you hold where you're earning that ordinary income. And there's seven tests to material participation. The one that we're looking at here is 500 hours. So you have to spend 500 hours in your combined rental real estate activity in order to do what we were just talking about, where you group in or you aggregate in the limited partnership investments. So you have to spend 500 hours across the entire portfolio at that point. But if you've already spent 750 hours managing your landlording business or managing your rentals, then you're going to hit the 500-hour mark as well. The problem comes when you have like a real estate broker or a real estate developer or a real estate agent or, or a property manager or whatever. Those people will qualify as a real estate professional because they're, they're working 750 hours in a trader business. It's greater than half their time because it's the only thing that they do. Like if I'm a real estate agent and that's all I do, I'm a real estate professional. I don't need a license to be a real estate professional. I know, again, our avid listeners are laughing because they've heard that a million times. I don't need a license to be a real estate professional. I can be a property manager and still be considered a real estate professional. It's all about the hours. But if I'm a property manager or if I'm a real estate agent and I qualify as a real estate professional in that activity, that's where the material participation rules come into play. So I also have to spend 500 hours if I want to aggregate in my limited partnership interests, I've spent 500 hours in my own portfolio 
outside of my like agent business or, or whatever else I'm doing as a real estate professional. So just watch out. Don't get caught by that. Uh, but if you're a full-time landlord, you're pretty much good in most cases to run this strategy where you invest in these syndicates and you can claim the entire loss in the first year. Uh, if you qualify as a real estate professional on your rentals, all you're really missing at that point is that aggregation election. And I think something to, important to point out is that just because you are not a real estate professional does not mean there's not a benefit to investing in in real estate. You know, assuming the investment's a good investment and that's something for you to decide, do your own due diligence on. But if they're running a cost irrigation study, you're putting yourself in a position, especially if you're you know in a high if you're a high income earner in a high tax bracket, to increase your cash flow, so increase your income without increasing the amount of tax you're paying because the depreciation expense from the cost irrigation study will help offset your rental income. And thus you could be creating cash flow, but you're not paying any taxes on it. So there's still benefits to doing it. There's still tax benefits that are there. It's just not as powerful as, as maybe you, you heard from, from, from some sources out there. And you could thank uh, the tax reform act of 1986 for doing away and putting in, in putting in the real estate professional, all of that into place by making, rental real estate always passive unless you are a real estate professional. Absolutely. And real quick, before we move on, we should always caveat that this aggregation election found under 1.469-9, you do need to be careful making that aggregation election. Do not do it without consulting a CPA that knows the space really well. There are a lot of downsides that would come on the back end whenever you're trying to liquidate property. So please make sure that you consult a professional before you pull the trigger on that aggregation election. Absolutely. And with that said, I think we could wrap this up for today. And we do are just going to jump right into our Q&A section because we don't have a debrief section on this episode, of course. And the first question is from Kurt. And Kurt asks, I've read as a passive landlord, you are not required to file 1099s since you're not a trader business. However, to take advantage of the 20% deduction, you are stating that it is a business, so then you have to. Is this accurate? Uh, yes. So previously, you did not have to file a 1099. That's always been up in the air. It's on Schedule E. Were you required to file 1099s? Did you file yes or no? Uh, but the AICPA was able to kind of nix that requirement in a letter to Congress. I believe is a letter to Congress. It's still available online somewhere. So basically, it's kind of been up in there. You don't have to file the 1099. However, if you qualify as a real estate professional, you should file 1099s. If you want to qualify for that QBI deduction, that 20% passive deduction, you should also file 1099s, especially with that QBI deduction, because you are literally claiming that your real estate is a trader business at that point. And trades or businesses under Section 162, or at least defined by Section 162, they are required to file Form 1099s at the end of the year. So make sure that you do that. You don't want to be caught having to shell out penalties or fees for penalties and all that stuff at some later point. I would even throw in there that it might be a best practice to do it. Um, and the only reason why I say that is because you don't always know when you might need this election. You know, things might not always go as planned and now all of a sudden you don't have the passive losses. Maybe you thought that was going to offset your rental income and now you're looking to take the 20% deduction and you just, you didn't file the 1099s. So now you can't take it. You're not going to be in compliance. You know, absolutely. But then my question would be, uh, as a landlord, I'm, I'm rehabbing my property. And if I tell this guy I'm going to have to issue him a 1099, my rehab cost just went up 25%. How do I handle that? 
you got to ask yourself, well, in that case, <laughs> you got to ask yourself, is this 20% deduction worth having to pay my contractor 25% more? And you have to look at the numbers, whatever the bottom line comes out to be, but chances mm-hmm. are it's probably going to be no. And in that case, you'd probably want to just say, you know, the, the hell with it, for lack of a better word. But um, I would say that for the most part, though, this 20% pass-through deduction for landlords is a non-issue for a lot of investors because you're going to be using other strategies such as cost irrigation studies or you're going to have enough operating expenses to cover your income, making this 20% deduction, like I said, a non-issue for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of our landlords show passive losses at the end of the day, so that 20% pass-through deduction Section 199A isn't necessarily applicable across the board. However, if you do have the positive income, taxable income, then it's definitely an issue that you need to address. And, uh, you know, we're realists. We know that if you are forced to send a 1099 to your contractors, that it might, in- your rehab costs might increase. And typically, what we'll do at that point is just talk to the client about hey, it's your business to protect, you know, it's your business to build, it's your business to tear down. Um, doing it by the book will protect you from the government. And uh, that's the way that we typically recommend that you go. But, uh, but we're also realists and we know that sometimes that's just not feasible. You just have to be able to justify that you paid the person at some later point. And you also have to justify that you weren't required to file a 1099 or, or maybe that you tried to file the 1099, but you were, you were unable to because you were unable to collect the information from the contractor. So if you can show that, you'll, be, you'll generally be okay. All right. We've got another question here from Patricia. Thank you very much for submitting your question. Looks like it's about startup costs. So if I'm acquiring a property, what happens with all the costs? How do I treat all the costs that go into acquiring that property? Okay, so all of these costs are going to be added to the cost basis of the property and then depreciated over 27.5 years generally. And these costs include title insurance for the lender and the owner, title search, government recording fees, attorney fees, state, city, and county tax stamps, transfer taxes, appraisal fees that are not required by the lender, surveys, inspections, and also the exploration fees and the travel costs associated with going to identify the property. So for example, if you were to, uh, it's the first time you're acquiring a property in the particular market, then you are going to have to add those fees to the cost basis. Once you acquire property in that market, you're not only going to have to do that. There's also a startup deduction that you can generally take. It's up to $5,000. Um, you're just going to have to speak with your tax advisors if that's going to be available to you in, in your specific circumstances. There you go. So if I am like looking at a property down in Hawaii, and let's just say that I've been looking for that property for many, many, many years, mm-hmm. you're telling me that I can't deduct all my travel costs down in Hawaii? I've never picked up the property. I've just always been looking for the property. I can't deduct those travel costs. Well, those would not be immediately deductible. Those would have to be added to the basis, the cost basis of your property and then advertised over the over that 27.5 year period. So it, that means that all the vacate all the travel you took to Hawaii to look at it is unfortunately not going to be immediately deductible. But it's for business. It's for my business that hasn't started yet, but it's for the business. Well, I mean, I, I think we get, this, we get this every once in a while. It's always it's always interesting. But uh, yeah, no, right on the same page. You can't just sits on the books. Just sits on the books until you pick up that first property. I mean, it's a great argument, and you know, uh, it, you also have to look at current expenses, right? Is the expense current? So uh, I don't know if that plays in, into a factor here, but I think that if you look at it, if you traveled, say, a year ago to Hawaii, look at a property, and 
you didn't purchase the property, then there's there's no income to to justify that expense. There you go. So if you want to deduct the travel costs, you got to have that property already in service into that in that geographic location which you're traveling to. Nicely done, Tom. Good explanation. Thanks. And remember, everybody, if you want us to answer your question live, you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com slash podcasts. And that's podcast with an S. Drop your question in that box, hit submit, and we may just answer it live. And before I forget, let me just add this in too. If there's any any topics that you want to hear about, any guests that you want us to interview, uh, go ahead and drop that in that box too, that question box. And uh, we may just bring them on. We may just discuss that topic. So you never know. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients. And with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.